Everybody knows the deal is rotten. Old Black Joe's still picking cotton for your ribbons and bows. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Welcome everybody to the Lifeboat Hour, Friday, September 11, 2015. Welcome. Until I realized what the date is, I had other plans for today's show, but I put those aside in order to observe what must be observed on this day. As you all know, this is not just another Friday. So here is about five minutes of what many of us heard 14 years ago this morning. Good morning, America. I'm Charles Gibson. I'm Diane Sawyer, and it's Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. It is lunchtime in London, 5 a.m. in Los Angeles, and 8 a.m. here in New York, live from the CNN Financial News headquarters. It is beautiful outside, perfect September day with lots of sunshine. Oh, would you look at Washington, huh? I'm going outside today. Other than that, it's kind of quiet around the country. We like quiet. It's quiet. It's too quiet. Number two. Yeah. This, Justin, you are looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. La espera de, de mayores informaciones, saber qué fue lo que ocurrió, cómo fue que este... Apparently a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center in New York. It, it does not appear that there's any kind of a, an effort up there yet. Now remember, oh my God. Oh my God. That looks like a second plane. Just I did not see a plane go in. That, that just exploded. We I, just saw another plane coming you, in from the side. You did. I did that was out of absolute Yes, and that's view. the second explosion. You could see the plane come in just from the right-hand side of the screen. So this looks like it is oh, some Lord. sort of a concerted Delivered. effort to attack the World Trade Center that is underway. This is so shocking, of course, to everybody watching. I, I've never seen anything like it. It literally blew itself into World Trade Center. The building's exploding right now. you got people running up the street. David, we're going to, David, we're going to cut the country off. President Bush is speaking. Uh, today, we've had a national tragedy. Uh, two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country and the Pentagon is being evacuated. There is a large fire there, and that is the smoke you see in the shot that you are looking at now. It appears that an aircraft of some sort did hit the side of the Pentagon. That's a very haunting description that Bob Kerr just gave of that low-flying aircraft near the White House, and one can only wonder if that was something that ultimately ended back. up in the Pentagon. We just saw a live picture of what seemed to be a portion of the building falling away. Wow. And some Jamie, people were... Jamie, I need you to stop for a second. There has just been a huge explosion. We can see uh, a billowing smoke rising. And I can't... I'll, I'll tell you that I can't see that second tower. But there was a cascade of sparks and fire. And now this it looks almost like a mushroom cloud explosion. Let's go to the Trade Tower again because, John, we now have... 
I, what do we have? We don't... Wow. It looks like a, a new plume, a new large plume of smoke. Only one tower is standing. The other has collapsed. It Thanks has very much, Dan. The whole side has collapsed? The whole there? building has collapsed. The whole, whole building has collapsed? The building has collapsed. We heard a big bang, and then we saw smoke coming out, and everybody started running out, and we saw the plane on the other side of the building, and there was smoke everywhere, and people are jumping out the windows. Over there, they're jumping out the windows, I guess, because they're trying to save themselves. I don't know. And there's, you can see, perhaps the second tower, the front tower, the top portion of which is collapsing. Good Lord. There are no words. There's a, there's a haze everywhere. It's very, very difficult to see, but there has been a, a whole area has been covered by soot and ash. It looks almost like snow. So as people are coming up the street, running from the scene of this new explosion, 所有飞往纽约和华盛顿的客机都已转飞加拿大的机场。I'm going to interrupt you, Senator McCain. These are the first pictures we have in.、Uh, this is from Somerset County, Pennsylvania. This is where the United Airlines flight, I believe it is 176, went down. Hillary, I need to interrupt you. This is a Taliban spokesman、uh, talking、uh, now in Kabul, I believe. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward, and freedom will be defended. قبل دقائق من افتتاح Wall Street الذي انهار تماما بعد أن التهمته النيران. أول تعليق لمكتب التحقيقات الفيدرالي أشار إلى أن طائرة البوينغ اختطفت من مطار بوستن. It doesn't seem possible that that has been 14 years. How do we begin to put into words what's changed since then? Well, here are some of the most important words spoken about the event by the person I consider the expert on what really happened. Yes, here is Mike Rupert talking about the attacks in 2013 on the Allison Hope Weiner Show, Media Mayhem. This is only about five minutes, and after this clip, I'm going to introduce our guest. The attacks were orchestrated by Dick Cheney. They were maestroed by Dick Cheney, and that goes to the chapter on war games that I wrote in the book, where I have absolute on-the-record information from U.S. Air Force sources,、uh, showing that、uh, 24 false radar blips were in injected onto radar screens during the hijackings themselves in war game exercises directly under the control of Vice President. Why do you object to the use of the word collusion? Because.、Uh, Collusion would, in, would to me, imply you have this group who can do one thing and this group, and they decide to cooperate together. No, the whole thing was run at the U.S. government level. We have undisputed records, and and, and here I cited stories from ABC, NBC, Newsweek, and and, and so forth. You, you don't want to challenge them, showing that Mohammed Atta and uh, uh, Hazmi's several of the hijackers had attended military flight training schools. Uh, uh, Atta, I think, at Maxwell Air Force Base in Florida. But in point of fact,、uh, none of the of of the hijackers, aside from the ones that it was known to have attended military schools,、uh, had had obtained a pilot's license, let alone the ability to fly a multi-engine jet aircraft, which requires an instrument rating and perform maneuvers that fighter pilots wouldn't want to perform.
so I believe, uh, and, and I think the evidence is very clear, and I've got to say that Rubicon is the second or third largest selling book about September 11th after the Kane Commission report. And it's, you know, it's in the library, still in Barnes & Noble. No, the U.S. government has never even acknowledged that the book exists. If Dick Cheney was responsible, what's the end game? What was the end game for him? Oil. Iraqi oil. Uh, and this is an excuse to go into Iraq as it turned, you know, I mean, even though there's no connection. And that was another one of the big lies the government told that Saddam Hussein had something to do with 9-11, when we all know that he didn't. Uh, and as a matter of fact, there's a, a long list of on-the-record statements of government officials saying that uh, Richard Clark, I think, for example, was one, you know, saying that, okay, we're all looking at Afghanistan, and then the word came from Rumsfeld, and, 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 and all the people in the Pentagon were going to Iraq. And they were, what? Why are we going to Iraq? Now, Saddam Hussein was a threat for two reasons. Iraq had, at the time, the second largest oil reserves on the planet, uh, which had been lying fallow, essentially, uh, since the sanctions from the 91 Gulf War. So they hadn't been tapped as much. The infrastructure was tapped. But Saddam Hussein was also pricing, was also moving to price in euros. And, and the threat to dollar hegemony made him public enemy number 1A, 1 plus, whatever. Uh, and, and so that became a major priority for the U.S. government. And that, you know, I, would, I wouldn't say mission accomplished when you've killed two million Iraqi civilians. Which you did get, they did get control of the oil. They did get control of which the oil. Which was the real mission. Which was controlled now under production sharing agreements so that various countries that needed that oil, and that would include Russia and China, got their share, but all priced in U.S. dollars. The White House, the U.S. government, had received detailed warnings from the Russian uh, DFS, Foreign Intelligence Service, from MI6, from even from the Israelis, uh, very specific warnings. And, and, and if you put them together, what was very clear that was hijacked airliners from American and United are going to be crashed into the World Trade Center in the week of September the 9th. As a matter of fact, Vladimir Putin was on uh, television uh, two days after the attacks, and I confirmed, I pulled the story on this, and he said, I sent a specific delegation to warn President Bush that planes were going to be hijacked and crashed into the World Trade Center. These were direct warnings. So, and the knowledge turns out to have been in Morocco and, and many, many other countries that these attacks were coming again during this week. Now, if we backpedal a little bit, why was Dick Cheney sending all the fighters out of the region? When there's Wh this much intelligence. Why was he, when, when you have all these countries warning you of this, why do you paralyze your own defense system at that time? Hi, everyone. I'm Alison Hope Weiner, and I'm here to announce a new contest. We're going to be giving away two iPad minis this week. So uh, that was the voice of Mike Rupert. And, Mike, it's good to hear your voice again on this show. Wish you were with us today, Mike, because my guest is our dear friend, Jenna Orkin. I wanted Jenna to come on the show today not only to talk about Mike's analysis, but to share her own experience of being in Manhattan on 9-11 and the environmental activism with which she's been involved since then. Jenna lives in Manhattan and is a journalist whose work has been published at websites such as Counterpunch and Music and Vision Daily, uh, among just a few. And she's also the co-founder of the World Trade Center Environmental Organization. Uh, she started researching and writing for Mike's former website, From the Wilderness, in 2004, which eventually led her to write the book, A Moron's Guide to Collapse. And then later, uh, upon Mike's passing, she wrote the book, Scout, 
a memoir of, investiga- of an investigative journalist. Welcome back to the Lifeboat Hour, Jenna. Thanks so much, Carolyn. We're definitely going to be taking callers today on the show, and as always, the number is 888-874-4888 if you have a question or comment for Jenna or me. So the very first thing I want to talk with Jenna about is what we both consider the definitive book on 9-11, Crossing the Rubicon, The Decline of the American Empire at the End of the Age of Oil by Mike Rupert. More than 600 pages with over 1,000 footnotes, Rubicon is an encyclopedia of the before, during, and after of 9-11, leaving no stone unturned. And as far as I know, it's still in the library of the Harvard University School of Business. And before I ask Jenna about the book, I want to read one of the quotes with which Mike begins the book from former Black Panther Fred Hampton, who said, We get answers that don't answer, explanations that don't explain, and conclusions that don't conclude. So, Jenna, what would you like to say today about Rubicon 14 years later? I agree that it's the um, definitive book on the subject. I'd also recommend as websites, of course, from thewilderness.com, Mark Rabinowitz's oilempire.us, and historycommons.org, which all come at this problem from different angles and together make a very valuable resource. So um, for people who are intimidated by the size of Mike's book, I'd recommend that you first watch his video, Truth and Lies of 9-11, which I did as homework for this interview. Um, And it's interesting because he did that speech shortly after 9-11, so there were things that he hadn't found out yet. But he lays the groundwork, and stop me if I'm, you know, going into too much detail. He talks about Zbigniew Brzezinski's The Grand Chessboard, in which he, uh, Brzezinski talks about the resource, which was the Caspian Sea, and the need for American hegemony in that region. It turned out to be a disappointment, but that's what they were aiming for, was to encircle that area. There were certainly plans to go into Afghanistan. He talks about... Um, events long before 9-11, which would lead you absolutely to conclude that it was not a foreign notion that the um, planes would fly into buildings. For instance, in Operation Northwoods, the Joint Chiefs of Staff in Kennedy's administration planned to blow up a plane and blame it on Cuba, thereby necessitating an invasion there. This was nixed by Kennedy um, and revealed by James Bamford. Then he talks about Project Bojinka in the Philippines, which was also a plane into a building exercise, which was uncovered. So when Condoleezza Rice said, we never thought a plane would fly into a building, um, it's absolutely transparently false. And then he talks about uh, Brzezinski's manufacturing of consent for war, that you have to have an attack on your own territory, how Pearl Harbor was that during World War II. And um, he taught, well, I think he talks about the PNAC document, which took that uh, banner up from Brzezinski. The The PNAC PNAC, uh, being the project for a new American century, correct? Yes. The Uh neocons, Cheney, Jeb Bush, Douglas Fife, all those people. Mm-hmm. saying that we have to build up the American military, but the American people won't go for it, 
absent a new Pearl Harbor, that famous quote. And then he talks about other clues that something major was coming, such as the put options placed on United and American Airlines, six times the usual level, way out of whack. And what's significant about that is not, you know, that we're saying the American government profited from 9-11 by placing put options, but that the American government monitors put options in real time. So... um, Obviously, they knew. They knew from the intelligence sources, Russian, God, MI6, Mossad. They knew from Colleen Rowley and Robert Wright saying we have to investigate Musawi's laptop, which was routinely uh, denied. Um, So that's the setup for 9-11. And then on the morning of, what he talks about in the book, and not so much in the video because he barely knew about it at that time, were the five or more war games going on that morning, which diverted planes from the East Coast as far away as they could possibly be towards exercises in northern Canada and Alaska. There were about eight fighter pilots left on the East Coast, and while there is a history of intercepting planes that have gone off course, somehow it just didn't happen that morning. Um, And... To me, the real red flag is the Pentagon. When both Trade Center towers had been hit, the Pentagon is one of the most highly defended buildings in the world. They know the hijackers are interested in New York and Washington. They're, you know, scouting around in the sky. Are they coming? Are they coming? And while they're doing that, they get, you know, hit on the head. I mean, that's just beyond. That's ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. and then he also mentions in that tape you played that one of the war games introduced chaff onto the radar screen. So anybody, any pilots, and they fly in pairs, who wished to go up, intercept the planes, and get permission later, which was quite possible, was completely stumped by not knowing what was real world and what was exercise. And they actually have tapes of conversations where people were... You know, um, were told that this is going, you know, not knowing if they were participating in a game or if this was for real or not. Um, He talks about after the attacks, the anthrax attacks, and how they targeted Dashiell and Leahy, who were the most prominent figures opposing the Patriot Act, and then the um, domestic, gosh, I'm trying to avoid the word terrorism, the domestic... Uh, dictatorship that the Patriot Act set up, which was signed before most people had a chance to read it, and was opposed by only a very few people. So uh, there's so much in that book, and you can, you know, have it by your bedside for the rest of your life consulting it. (laughs) Absolutely, and I believe that the Truth and Lies uh, video, wasn't that the Portland State lecture? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, and and it was pretty early on after after the attacks, and uh, I recall so vividly how uh, you know it was Mike and from the wilderness that I relied on because I was just beginning to wake up to what was going on everywhere, um, and so Rubicon, crossing the Rubicon, the decline of the American Empire at the end of Age of Oil, 
you got to get this book, and if it's in your library, you might want to take it out and uh, dust it off today and look at some of the pieces here and there. Maybe, you know, maybe just kind of refresh your memory about what was really going on uh, 14 years ago today. And Jenna, I thank you so much for that recap because, uh, you know, we turn on TV and we see lots of memorial services today and celebrations and, you know, looking back, marking the, the anniversary. But who's talking about this? Not many people. And that's one reason I wanted you to come on the show. So thank you for that. And thank you for the opportunity. You know, I have some notes here, and I had forgotten to say that one of the war game exercises was actually a plane into a building exercise at the National Reconnaissance Office at the same time as the real plane was flying into the real building a few blocks away. Mm, mm, amazing. Really amazing. Um, would you mind repeating those websites that you talked okay. about that give some other perspectives? Yeah, sure. let's listen um, to that. There's from the wilderness.com, of course. There's oilempire.us, um, which not only deals with 9-11, but also with the Kennedy assassination, all kinds of hoaxes. He distinguishes between um, conspiracy theory, conspiracy fact, how the government engages in disinformation to confuse people. Uh, then there's also historycommons.org which is a very valuable timeline with links to news articles that were taking place at the time. And I want to stress about Mike's book, because we're talking about what a large number of people call conspiracy theories um, and what Mike called conspiracy fact, that at his height, I won't say all the time, but at his best and a lot of the time, Mike relied on mainstream sources. So, you, you know, these... People were effectively um, speaking against their own interests, although they may not have realized it at the time. But he quotes in Rubicon, he's got sources from CBS, Le Figaro, uh, you know, Reuters. Yes, he does. People you, you really don't want to argue with. Right. Yeah, he was really he was really fabulous about uh, putting putting those sources in alongside some of the other alternative ones that we aren't so familiar with. So yeah. thanks for, for thanks for reminding us of that. Um, you know, recently, Jenna, you and CollapseNet, which Mike founded, uh, have been circulating a White House petition demanding the release of 28 classified pages of a U.S. government report on 9/11. So could you give us the background on this petition and tell us what it's all about? Yes. Um, the petition, which I found out about from a 9-11 researcher called John Gold, who has worked closely with Cindy Sheehan and who's greatly responsible for um, funding, I, I don't mean he personally funding, but fundraising for John Field and the Ground Zero workers. So the petition, whose deadline is the 25th of September, is to release the 25 redacted pages from the congressional inquiry into 9-11. And this is what congresspersons Stephen Lynch and Walter Jones have been advocating for years. So it's very important to reveal uh, the uh, Saudi connections because the Saudis were let off the hook inexplicably and um, flagrantly when you consider that planes were grounded, that quote-unquote terrorists are tortured all the time, whereas the bin Laden family was uh, just sent home for first class when nobody else was even allowed to fly. Uh, and then 
he says that the 28 redacted pages probably discuss the link between Bandar, Prince Bandar, who uh, the Bush family called Bandar Bush, right. the links between Bandar and the um, Bush family, the consulate in Jeddah where some of the hijackers, I'm quoting from John Gold's Facebook mm-hmm. page, where some of the hijackers got their visas was the same consulate used in the 80s to bring quote-unquote terrorists to the United States to train for the Afghanistan-Russia war, that the Visa Express program, which was used by some of the hijackers to get visas, applied only to Saudi Arabia and was started months before 9-11. Stuff like that, he ends. You know, it sounds unimportant at this point, but those 28 pages may be a smoking gun. They certainly may be if they contain the kinds of things you're talking about. Yeah. Right. So you want us to sign this petition? It's on CollapseNet. Where where else can we find it? Uh, right now, I just recommend going to CollapseNet. They put it very prominently. Okay. Okay. Very good. Um, so Jenna, uh, a lot of things happened on 9/11, um, and, and some personally affected you. Uh, let's talk about happen what happened environmentally on that day. What what was in the air? Ah. <laughs> you want to start there? Okay. Besides airplanes. <laughs> yeah. What was in the air was at least 2,000 contaminants. That's the number given in the most estimable Sierra Club report. But it's probably, who cares? Because they have right. interacting properties, and each one of them is deleterious enough. So for just, you know, take your pick. The estimates of how much asbestos is somewhere between 400 and a couple of thousand tons of asbestos, which was used to coat at least one of the towers until it became illegal to use it. This was all pulverized. And so when the government said the air is safe because we haven't found over 1% asbestos, that's an example of just one kind of lie that they tell. Because the 1% standard is for an intact structure, where if that let's say a pipe, is 1% asbestos. It's considered dangerous because a little tiny fleck of it may uh, separate and go into your lung, and and that's very bad news. But in the World Trade Center at Ground Zero, we're not talking about intact pieces of equipment. We're talking about dust. It has all been pulverized. So to use the 1% standard is just not cool. All right, you have all the asbestos. You had 50,000 computers each made with at least four pounds of lead. You had mercury in the fluorescent light bulbs, 41 milligrams per bulb. You had uh, radioactive americium-241 in the smoke detectors. Everything that's in a city was in the World Trade Center. It was a city. It had its own zip code. Mm -hmm. So, um, all right, there's that. Then... Dioxin, because the fires were allowed to burn and smolder for at least three months, and the smoldering was, in fact, more dangerous because mm. of the levels of dioxin that were released. Um, there were re- we broke records of all kinds of things. Dr. Thomas Cahill of the University of California at Davis came and measured levels of very and ultrafine particles here. And of the 7,000 samples he had taken around the world, including at the burning Kuwaiti oil fields, we won the prize for the mm-hmm. highest levels. Uh, and he also tested metals. And 
the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, didn't even test uh, particles of such a small size. So that's another way in which they lied, was by simply not doing the tests. Um, and I never actually got to that little bit where they lied, but they did. They said the air is safe to breathe, good news, go back. Um, <coughs> so residents not only were unable to get insurance a lot of the time, but they were told by the New York City Department of Health, use a wet mop or a wet rag yourself, and where the dust is really bad, wear long pants. Now, some of them couldn't use a wet mop or a wet rag because the water was off. And I know one man who did set about to clean his apartment himself, lived on the 11th floor. There was no electricity, so he climbed up, filled garbage bags, you know, full of his former furniture, dragged it downstairs again, up again, down again, etc., etc. Tons, literally tons of debris was removed by him, and, of course, he became very sick soon afterwards. So there are stories like that. Now, another way in which they lied about the asbestos was that they used antiquated equipment. So for every fiber that EPA found, independent contractors found nine. So the risk of cancer just for the, from the asbestos was possibly one person in ten. This was revealed only in January of 2002 in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch um, upon interviews with the EPA chemist, Dr. Kate Jenkins, who suffered greatly for her pains and had also um, been campaigning against Monsanto for years. So she's one of the great heroes. Mm. All right. Um, so that's what was in the air. That's just, you know, the tip of the iceberg. I also right. have my website right now in WTCEO.org, which is I haven't updated in many, many years. But uh, PCBs reached 75,000 times their previous record. Now, that's my calculation, because nobody else did it. But now I quote Juan Gonzalez's book. Uh, PCBs were detected at high concentrations. The toxic equivalency, TEQ, is 151 PG over L. In previous harbor work, the highest observed PCB TEQ was 0.002. So I did the math. It's 75,000 mm -hmm. times, and I... Mm presented this at scientific conferences, and nobody ever contradicted it. Um, so so I, I want to ask you, Jenna, uh, at that time, how far were you, how far did you live away from uh, Ground Zero? I lived in Brooklyn at that time. Now, as you said before, I'm in Manhattan. But uh, so the plume that day, well, it moved, and that's one of the problems, was that they never did uh, the traditional testing of concentric circles to find out where it went and which contaminants went where. But I found a kind of a gray area level of asbestos in my apartment when I had the carpet tested. And on the basis of that, I became part of uh, a lawsuit against the Environmental Protection Agency. But my, the problem was not where I was. The problem was where my son was. He was at school four blocks north of Ground Zero. And that's a whole story that yeah, came in that uh, day. But 
I will ask you that in another question, um, oh. but I want to remind listeners that we're taking calls today as I speak with Jenna Orkin, longtime friend of Mike Rupert, who now lives in Manhattan and has been a tireless environmental activist since 9-11, struggling on behalf of a different kind of 9-11 truth movement, namely transparency regarding the environmental devastation of that day uh, that continues into the present moment. And the number to call is 888 888- if you have a question or a comment for Jenna. Um, Didn't mean to cut you off right there if if you have another thought that goes along with what was in the air. Oh, um, you had a question about the school? Uh, Yeah, I want to get to that. Go ahead and talk about that if you want to. I'm sure our listeners would love to know how you got into the struggle of all of this, and I know that it has to do with your son and his school, so tell us about that, please. He was in high school at Stuyvesant, four blocks north of Ground Zero, and Giuliani put a kind of crime tape just at that street, decreeing that the contaminants went no further. And the school reopened on October 9th, four weeks to the day after 9-11. So it was uh, almost the first high school, well, certainly the closest first high school to reopen. Um, There was a college that had reopened one week after 9-11. So not only did the school have the World Trade Center to the south, but all the garbage was brought to their doorstep because it's on the water, the Hudson River. And the barge was there, which then trucked the stuff to Staten Island and from there, God knows where, China, South Korea, was sent all over the world for recycling, quote-unquote. And I got a very panicky email from Korea in December of that year, saying, is it contaminated? And I said, yes, but don't feel discriminated against. They're doing it to us, too. Well, anyway, so this is in total violation of state, federal, and local laws, but it was considered an emergency, and so the laws go out the window. Now, you might well ask, what's the emergency after, let's say, outside three weeks? Because nobody's going to be found in that rubble anymore. So exactly what emergency is this, but anyway, that's what prevailed, and the cleanup was performed in record speed, round the clock, with these kids sitting in there, and, you know, some teachers kept the windows closed upon advice, as though that's going to do anything. The um, HVAC system that's heating, ventilation, and air conditioning was the source of the air, and that opened right up onto the barge. It would, they just sucked in all that stuff, even mm. if you had the windows closed. So kids starting getting, started getting coughs, nosebleeds. There was one girl who hadn't had asthma in about seven years and had her first attack because she went swimming in the school pool, which had not been cleaned. Oh, wow. And there were, um, see, for the first week when people were agitated about the air, not that many were, I have to say, they believed the government, and there was great enthusiasm to return to the school because the kids are very enthusiastic about it. It was the only school my son ever liked. Um, But there was a girl who questioned the air quality, and the school chancellor set up his office in the building for that week, and he said, well, you can leave the school, but if you do that, we're not going to let you back. Mm, And so she decided to stay, and then in February of 2002 she had to have spinal taps for elevated fluid in her brain now i'm not who knows if that's connected but 
Mm-hmm. But uh, Levy, the guy in charge of the schools at that time, you know, did this great PR move for a week, and then he was out of there, and the kids were left for the remainder of the year. Um, and the other irony of the school was that, you know, they, we at that time, if you can rewind your mentality, we we were afraid of another attack. It was a right very real possibility to us. And so they were planning, you know, emergency moves. Well, the schools, um, because of the barge operation, the, you know, dispositing, disposing of the garbage, that entrance was closed. So if there was another emergency downtown, the only entrance open to the school would have been the south entrance, which was closer to the disaster than the other entrance. Um, Our great hero was Congressman Nadler. He was the sole public official who was campaigning on our behalf. Later on, in February of 2002, Hillary Clinton and Joe Lieberman held hearings, but it was a done deal by that time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, uh, how is your son's health today? He's fine, thank you. Yeah, good. Yeah, so uh, I, at the time, and I think it was after Mike and others began to talk about how quickly the debris was removed. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it wasn't just about, I mean, we were told that part of the reason for that was the environmental stuff, or maybe all that, that was all the reason for it, but it was also the dismantling of a crime scene. Oh, yeah. You know. Take it, you know, take it somewhere else, and and we cannot put this puzzle together, you know, based on any kind of physical evidence. Would you agree? Exactly. Yeah. Right. And so the people who want to talk about whether or not there were explosives in the building, you're never going to find out. So give that That's one up. Right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice theory, <laughs> and uh, and and could be very true, but we'll never know. Yeah, we have no time for theories. There's enough factual yeah. evidence out there. Yes, yes. Um, so are you doing anything besides the petition to, um, to get any kind of reinvestigation happening? Oh, the other thing that I wanted to mention was that the funding for the Zadroga Act is scheduled to expire in 2016. The Zadroga Act is what keeps the program at Mount Sinai open to study and help ground zero workers and the program at Bellevue for the residents who've been affected by the environment. So if that funding dries up, those people are up the creek. So John Stewart is going to be campaigning in Washington with John Feal, F-E-A-L, of the feelgoodfoundation.org, F-E-A-L, goodfoundation.org, and other ground zero workers who's been affected. Um, John Feel has a very interesting story. Would you like to hear it? I would it? love to hear it. Yeah, please. Okay. He uh, hurt his foot. I think he lost part of his foot at Ground Zero. There were not a lot of injuries at Ground Zero. A lot of illnesses, not a lot of injuries. But his was one. So um, I believe the story is that he wanted some kind of compensation and was stymied in getting it and got very frustrated set up this website, became more and more known, and, uh, as did the website. And um, somebody contacted him once, another Ground Zero worker, and said, I'm in deep 
trouble. I need a kidney. Can I put an advertisement on your website? And John Field said, no, you can't, but you can have one of my kidneys. So the uh, hospital officials attempted to dissuade him from going through, because it's a big deal. And they did all due diligence about telling him what he was, the dangers he was undergoing, but they did it. However, the kidney was incompatible. So it got used by somebody else who I believe was married to a guy who then said, well, thank you so much, and now somebody can have my kidney. Anyway, the end result was, I believe, I'm not making this up, but I could be wrong, three people got kidneys out of it. Mm. And, uh, you know, these people are very dedicated. John Field, John Gold, Maureen Silverman, who held the first protest um, against the Environmental Protection Agency in December of 2001. 9-11 9-11 Environmental Action. Shout out to Joel Kupferman of the New York Environmental Law and Justice Project. Mm-hmm. Suzanne Matei, Sierra Club. These are extraordinary people. Hugh Kaufman and Robert Martin of the um, EPA Ombudsman's Office. I could go on. Well, here we are 14 years later, and uh, I'm wondering what environmental effects we're currently seeing in terms of illnesses and deaths. I think recently, uh, didn't we see the death of the dust lady? Um, we did. Yeah. So, so tell the me more about that the current... I have on that, yeah. uh, some conflicting numbers, but it seems that of ground zero workers and residents, approximately 33,000 have more than one illness. God. Mm, so then mm. more than that are, are sick. Now, 30, wait, ground zero responders with 9-11 linked cancer, 3,700. What you have to bear in mind with this is that 14 years is not a long time with respect to cancer. No. Some cancers have a much longer incubation period, so you can expect a mushrooming starting at around 20 years. Um, so this is a very significant number for 14 years on. And, uh, uh, okay, of those 3,700, 1,100 cops, 2,134 other ground zero responders, 467 downtown workers and residents, many have more than one kind of cancer. Over 2,100 firefighters have retired on disability with World Trade Center-related illnesses. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, thirty. Okay, I had one statistic that says thirty-seven hundred cancers, and another that says forty-four hundred cancers. Mm-hmm. So, um, <laughs> I think this is the first time you and I have had an opportunity to really talk about um, your experience that day, and and. You know, I really want to hear um, more about your experience that day, and I want to hear also, Jenna, just the emotional effects of this on you over the over the course of these 14 years. Well, it changed my life. I mean, after, uh, you know, on September 11th, I wanted to know where my son was, and um, he eventually called, but uh, I, I'm not sure what direction to go in right now, whether to focus on that day or to focus... Afterwards, um, <laughs> you can focus on both. You can do whatever you yeah. like. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, that day. Let's let's go back to that day for a moment. Yeah. So he was in physics class, 
And they saw the first plane hit, and the kids rushed to the window, and they're just watching this plane and the building on fire. And what does the physics teacher do? He closes the blinds. Mm. Then in, you know, other parts of the school, you can read the kids' accounts of it. Um, people were screaming, crying. The head of the school was visited by the FBI, who, um, and he said... Then when the first building came down, he asked the head of, I'm not head of, I'm sorry, he asked the member of the FBI, what's the likelihood that the building will fall? No, I got that all wrong. When the first building was hit, he said, what's the likelihood the building will fall? And the FBI guy said, not a chance. Mm. Then when the building fell, the FBI guy said, you have to evacuate because there's a chance that the vibrations of the collapse of the towers could bring down this school building. So at 10.30, the kids were evacuated. And there was a teacher posted downstairs. I think her name was Renee Levine. And the kids went down, and she said, you see the person next to you? I don't care whether you know them or not, because it's a school of 3,200 kids. Whether you know them or not, that's your buddy. Stay together. Run. Run mm. north. Some of the kids didn't go north because they didn't live there. So they crossed the Brooklyn Bridge, and that's the direction in which the plume went, more of it right. anyway. And there was another guy, I think it was Danny Jay, the math teacher, who walked people across the bridge. The teachers on that day were very heroic. There was a girl who didn't know how to get home to New Jersey, and the gym teacher told her, you know, if all else fails, I will swim you across. Mm. Um, so my son later wrote an article for, for, for English class about it. He said, apart from the cloud coming toward us, it was great run-for-your-life weather. He just mm. went, ran five miles that day carrying 26 pounds of books because he hadn't gotten his act together to get a locker yet. It was still the first week of school. Uh, and then he went to the house of a girl. I'm not sure whether he had known her before. And a bunch of them went. Then he was picked up by my friend who took him to lunch. That restaurant, which is generally a very kind of sleepy place, was overrun with refugees from lower Manhattan. Mm. And um, my son fell asleep at the table. My friend said that he, before he fell asleep, he said, did you see that woman on the street crying? And my friend said, yes. And my son said, uh, do you know why she was crying? My friend said no. And he said she missed her bus. If she had succeeded in getting the bus, she would have been in there too. Right. Um, so that day itself was just one was in total emergency mode. Right. After that, I was still in emergency mode because I didn't think the kids should go back to the school. And I was very alone in that mm. um, because... It's an ambitious population. There are a lot of Chinese and Russian immigrants. They really worked all their lives to come here and give their kids the chance of, a, you know, going to Harvard. And the kids do end up going to Harvard or the equivalent. So they're mm -hmm. not very willing to give that up. And the thought that they can't be in the building with its science labs and those teachers, you know, working focusing on the future was not pleasing to them. Not only that, but...
the word about the environmental dangers did not get out in Chinese, Korean, and Russian. And uh-huh. that was actually what brought me into working with the Parents Association because I was sending mad emails to anybody I could think of, mm-hmm. including the media, by the way. Whatever right. was going on, you know, whatever bits of data came in, I was sending to the Parents Association, to scientists I'd met at assembly hearings, to the media whom I found on the Internet, and some of that stuff got on. But so I, I wrote to the Parents Association, you're not, you know, you have to have this stuff translated into Chinese. And I got an email back from a Chinese member of the board, and she said, please come to the uh, meeting of the board the executive board of the Parents Association. So I went. It was the first time I ever had anything to do with the Parents Association. And this woman was terribly disappointed that I wasn't Chinese because um, she had emailed me, what, what dialect of Chinese do you speak? <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, I started going to those meetings. They were incredibly fractious, contentious, because there was this faction that was very Wall Street-oriented, and was dismissive of the environmental dangers. And then there was the other faction, which, you know, felt differently, but we were a very small minority, and it was uh, it was uphill going. So that, uh, yeah. So I was, I was working on that all the time. Christmas Eve, you know, on the computer. Christmas Day, Merry Christmas, everybody. Here's your present. Back to the computer. Mm-hmm. That was life, all the time. Yeah, yeah. And so um, tell us a little bit, if you, if you would, uh, you know, about the emotional effects and, and how your life has changed. And, of course, uh, all of this in conjunction with your learning from Mike and your knowing him and reading what was on From the Wilderness and all of us at that time wake, waking up and then the great peak oil conference in 2006 in Manhattan that uh, brought a lot of us together who were mostly concerned about energy at that time. There wasn't so much talk of 9-11 at that conference, but it was a time of waking up. And, uh, you know, during the Bush administration and the, the you know, the run-up to Iraq and all of that, um, speak, please. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, as I said, it was... Not, uh, 24-7 environmental stuff, and that lasted for a couple of years. My son ended up not going back to Stuyvesant. I mean, I took him out in February, but first I had to convince my ex-husband. And so I, it was very difficult to get the data to do so because the government was suppressing the data. So that was the cause of my endless research in the beginning. But then after that, you know, you kind of willy-nilly, you get this expertise and people start asking you things and then you want to answer them, so you keep at it. And also, I'd promised my son that I would do everything I could to get help get the school cleaned up. Anyway, he ended up not going back. The school did get a clean-up in 2002, in the summer. Mm. Um, and the residents got a very slipshod clean-up. In fact, it was a joke. So, that was my life until 2000. And what changed at that point was the third anniversary, uh, there was a symposium uptown on 95th and Broadway at Symphony Space, and then a big event 
at the Manhattan Center on 34th Street. And at the symposium, I, did my, I was invited to speak about the environment. So I did that, and then I heard this interesting guy, Mike Rupert, and I heard him to the end, and I thought, oh, so it's not, you know, then I, things fell into place, and I saw that bad as our environmental situation was, <laughs> it was only a piece of a much larger and, if possible, even uglier picture. But So then I started reading from the wilderness and getting up to speed, and um, I wrote an article for them about the environmental situation downtown. And at that point, very few media were discussing it. Right. And he was surprised to hear about it, but they published that article and then I started reading more about peak oil and figuring out what From the Wilderness was looking for and sending them uh, media. I, I put myself on Google alerts for various subjects and would go through them and send From the Wilderness whatever I thought was up their alley. And so he started using those for the, uh, what is it called, TC17, or no, T17 area, which was right, the... Right the articles that he commented on. Mm-hmm. So that's how I started working for them. Um, and and working on peak oil and so on. Well, it certainly changed all of our lives, Jenna, in many different yeah. ways. Um, you, uh, cl- it certainly changed you up close because of where you lived. Um, but, you know, to say that the world has never been the same is probably the understatement of the year. And as as we look now at the geopolitical, and, and I'm going to kind of spring this one on you for a last question. Um, as we look at the geopolitical now, how do you connect the dots uh, between what's happening now and what happened on that day? All right. I guess I would like to say, you know, because people have said, well, we can see now with climate change that, that peak oil really wasn't an issue because look at the price of oil. It's gone so far down. Right, and it's quite right. the opposite of what you guys were saying. That it's not, um, okay, the peak oil message was simply not, was not simply that we're, we're running out of oil. No, it never was. Um, because you don't run out of oil. It just gets too difficult and too expensive to get. And at some at a certain point, you just say it's not worth it, and you leave it in the ground. So the issue was that we're running out of, and indeed we have run out of, easy oil. And mm-hmm. that is indisputable, because it's, you know, the difficult oil that requires fracking or going into deep water, like the BP uh, horizon, right, right. leak, spill, explosion, whatever you want to call it, these are all... So, so peak oil is, has been vindicated, for better or for worse, certainly for worse. Um, and uh, what was Mike saying in that tape you played before? It wasn't only peak oil that, that made the Bush uh, administration go into Iraq. It was also the loss of dollar hegemony. Well, that's playing mm-hmm. out, too. China yeah. and Russia are man- maneuvering to replace the dollar is the global reserve currency. Uh, and people are not, you know, uh, they're seeing w- what they can get. In other words, I, I don't see any indication 
of cooperation. There's a United Nations, what is it called, global initiatives movement right now to do some fantastic new world order, though they don't call it that, by 2030. And it will be government by the corporation. It will be pure fascism. Right, right. So that's the direction we're going in. Um, what We should be winding down. We should be entertaining the notion of sustainability and understanding what that means, and it does mean a sacrifice of our present lifestyle. But people don't want to hear it, That's and right. I don't think they will until they're forced to. Now, I, I just saw it. news today that they're warning about another kind of 9-11 attack in, in the United States. But, um, you know, you want to say, is that a promise? <laughs> right. Well, I want to remind folks that uh, there is this petition at CollapseNet, uh, which is asking for the release of 28 classified pages of a U.S. government report on 9-11. Go to CollapseNet and sign it. And uh, I want to thank you so much, Jenna Orkin, for being with us today on the show on this 14th marker of that day that changed everything. Uh, thank you for your work, for your books, uh, for all that you did then and for everything you've done since then, we thank you for being with us once more. And thank you so much, Carolyn. You're welcome. We will see all of you next week on the Lifeboat Hour uh, as Jennifer Hines is here. And Jennifer Hines is going to be talking about her second, her second phenomenal piece of research on the Arctic methane monster. And she's going to talk about her latest findings, and they're going to blow your socks off. So be here next week on the Lifeboat Hour with Jennifer Hines. Thank you, and have a good week. Everybody knows the deal is rotten. Old Black Joe's still picking cotton for your ribbons and bows. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed Everybody knows the war is over Everybody knows the good guys lost Everybody knows